This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest for you on the podcast. It is Eric Blem. He is an author, and he is the author of my favorite book of all time, and that is Fearless. That is the biography about the deceased Navy SEAL, Adam Brown. I've talked about this book on the podcast a bunch. Pretty much every time I think of it, I mention it. I have bought the book for other people. It's probably one of my most gifted books. It is absolutely my favorite book for a lot of reasons, a lot of which we get into in the show. He's also the author of The Last Season, The Only Thing Worth Dying For, and Legend. And guys, in this podcast, we don't just go over the books. We don't just talk about this book or that book, which we certainly do. We talk about his writing process. We talk about how he picks a story. We talk about how he gets into everything. And guys, he's gotten access to some of the least accessible people in the United States military. And he didn't get that because they didn't trust him or that he was an untrustworthy guy. And so they're like, sure, let's just like spill our guts to this guy. So you have to kind of read between the lines on some of the things that Eric is talking about in this podcast, because this is a guy that is able to gain trust from people in a very extreme way. And it leads to some of the amazing stories that he's been able to tell, especially with the only thing worth dying for and worth fearless. And so it was a wonderful conversation. If you stick with us until the end of the interview, we are going to talk a little bit about his upcoming project, the project that that he's currently working on. But guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Eric Blim, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Kyle, thanks for having me today. I'm so excited for this. Guys, know that I've been uh, trying to get you on for a while, and we are certainly going to talk about the book that you wrote called Fearless, which is my favorite book of all time. I talk about it all the time. We will certainly get into that more later on in this episode. But from the very beginning, I found it interesting on your website that you have a tagline for yourself, and the tagline is telling the stories of those who serve. And so in as brief a way as you can give us your life story, how did you go from you know being a little boy growing up to telling stories of those who serve? Oh, that's a great question, Kyle. I, um, well, first of all, I grew up in Southern California, and I, um, my original goal with writing, uh, the way I got into it, was because I wanted to uh, basically go and snowboard, of all things, around the world on someone else's dime. Uh, my mom died when I was 17, and she battled cancer for about four years. And uh, during that period of time, you know, my escape were, was books and magazines. And at the time, snowboarding was just getting started. And I was really, really interested in um, going that direction. I wanted to be a pro snowboarder in the 80s. And so if you can imagine, I got lots of day glow in my old photo albums <laughs> right, <laughs> right. from that period of life. And um, I uh, ended up following my heart. One of the last things my mom told me uh, before she passed away was, if there's anything you want to do in life, do it now because you never know about tomorrow. 
and you know she had she was a workaholic my my parents were both workaholics entrepreneurs and you know we didn't really have vacations other than you know driving from california to oklahoma to see my dad's relatives and maybe a couple little small trips here and there but for the most part they were workaholics always behind the eight ball and um the message i got was you know she was always putting off vacations and retirement and things like that for later and I really wanted to try and do something with my life where I lived life along the way. And um, I just kind of jumped forward from there. I, you know, I moved to Breckenridge, Colorado. I met a guy on a chairlift who was a travel writer. And he was telling um, a story, writing a story about Breckenridge. And as I was speaking with him, um, I just asked, what, what did you major in? And he said, journalism. And he said, it's a great deal. He said, I don't make a lot of, you know, treasure wise, you don't make a lot of money, but boy, I get to do some pretty cool things. I mean, I'm, I'm here in a hotel for a week. I'm going to tell a story about what it's like to ski in Breckenridge. And I'm like, that's when the light bulb went off. I thought I can be, you know, I've been reading these magazines forever. I love writing. That's where I excelled in school. Uh, more the right brain type of, you know, history, English were, were my areas that I didn't even have to think about. I could just do it. And math and science were where I had to struggle. And so I thought, hey, um, I'm going to write for a magazine. I'm going to see the world on someone else's dime. I'm going to do it for myself. I'm going to do it for my mom. And, um, you know, that live life along the way. I think that was a great message. So uh, the sub message from that is you never know where you're going to get these little hints about life. For me, it was seeing a guy single in the single line um, at the chairlift and saying, hey, are you single? And I hopped up on a ride with him and he basically gave me a little bit of, um, of knowledge about his what he was doing there. That led me down the path that I, where I am here, you know, 30 years later. So that's awesome. That, and you, you, you mentioned Oklahoma real quick. But where in Oklahoma? Because that's where I'm at. Well, my dad grew up in Kingfisher County. Um, and he grew up, he was, uh, went to a high school called big four, which was a, a culmination of four one room schoolhouses that then combined to make a high school, which barely had enough room to field a baseball team. You know, they had a basketball and baseball, they didn't have enough people for football. Um, and so it was, uh, you know, he grew up poor in a, in a home that had no electricity had, when I first visited my grandma, it was a, literally an outhouse. I would go out to the back. Um, there was propane versus, you know, electricity. And I think before she passed away, she had her first like real bathroom installed in her house when she was in her nineties. Um, nice. so yeah, so this is the area where he grew up, um, as a high school kid, he would rent land, um, to grow wheat. I mean, how many people can say, you know, <laughs> their high school job was, um, you know, uh, growing wheat on, you know, 10 acres or something like that, and then trying to sell it. Uh, that was what he did. And so that work ethic, I think, is something that um, I would look at and see where where he came from, where my mom came from, and it was always a you know a driving force for me. I got you. Well, I kind of interrupted you there because I I didn't want to forget about the Oki connection since I am an Oklahoman. But you know, you kind of had your your story about how you got into journalism, but specifically as you get down to telling stories about those who serve, how did you kind of make that transition? Yeah, the transition for that was uh, really 9-11. Uh, I was, I had graduated in journal, from journalism. I'd actually um, worked for a magazine for on staff for about five years, quit my job, traveled around the world with my girlfriend at the time. She's now my wife. And, um, and then 9-11 hit. Um, it actually hit uh, three days before our wedding day. Um, and we... Uh, 
you know, the show must go on. We kind of considered it the ultimate FU to terrorism was, you know, of course, the wedding. We've been planning it for uh, for a year. We're going to do this. And um, during that whole surge of kind of patriotism, I just kind of I, I took a step back and I was kind of like, what's your part in all this? What can you do? I had never served in the military. The, the closest I came to the military here in Southern California was when I was in high school, I would keep my hair cropped short so I could drive past the guards at Camp Pendleton because they have a great wave uh, called Del Mar Jetties. And, I, you know, they knew. They must have known I wasn't a Marine, but I would drive by with my surfboards on top of my buddies and I'd salute, drive past the gate and go straight to their surf break there on base. Um, and I, other than that, I, I really, it wasn't in my, um, my DNA. My, it wasn't a family tradition. I never thought of serving in the military, but I always respected it. I, I grew up reading books, like I was saying earlier, um, in the hospitals, uh, Battle of Midway, a lot of the Vietnam era stories. I knew of Vietnam veterans that lived near me. Uh, and I just had this great respect for the military. Uh, and I thought uh, at that time, uh, there was it was kind of during the period when uh, Stephen Ambrose and Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan came out. And you'd start hearing these stories, how there are so many World War II veterans that would passing away and their, their stories were dying with them. They'd never talked of their experiences in World War II. And I thought, well, after 9-11, when we were getting ready to, um, you know, uh, figure out what the response was to that, I figured, you know, this is history um, happening right now. This is our greatest generation. And what can I do to, to do my part? And I thought, I'm a writer. I'm a good journalist. I don't insert myself into the story. I don't get political. I stay true to the characters. And I thought, you know what? I want to document what's going on now. And so I kind of just put it out there to my agent, my literary agent at the time, that I would like to keep my eyes open for a story that's going to tell um, something to kind of earmark this time in history and hopefully allow some of the men and or women who are serving to tell their stories and in a way that they don't have to try and recount it, you know, 30 years later, like, let's do it now. Right. And we're going to spend some time getting into your books now. So that's awesome to get some insight into how you kind of stumble upon stories, but to everyone listening to this podcast right now, here's your call to action. Here's your commercial, whatever you want to call it before we get started, go buy these books and read them because we, we're not about to do a 12-hour podcast, okay? We're going to be going into some detail on Eric's books. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about Fearless here towards the end, but you've got to pick them up for yourselves and just take the ride, because that's one thing about your writing, is it does take people on a ride. They feel like they're riding shotgun on the stories with these people, and so I think that's why your books have done so well and why they've had such an impact on people. But the very first book that you published was called The Last Season, and so this is a story of Randy Morganson, he was a really legendary backcountry ranger and, you know, outdoorsman. Uh, and this book has won a lot of awards and it was named one of the greatest adventure biographies ever written by Outside Magazine. I feel like they know what they're talking about. And this book really puts you on the map. So what I want to know is how did you come across Morganson's story and why was it so fascinating that you decided to write an entire biography about the guy? Uh, you know, it really, again, it's a, it, it came to me kind of how I mentioned earlier, how you never know where you're going to get these little bits of advice or nuggets in life. And for me, um, when I got my degree in journalism, I had to have a minor and my minor I chose with outdoor recreation. And I thought that's a no brainer, right? That's simple. <laughs> it's, it's actually a very difficult um, major or minor. And it really is, you know, people who become work in the 
tourism industry or you know park rangers things like that do go into recreation or recreation management and in that i learned about the history of the national parks and I also um, had one professor, his name was Dan Dustin, another professor was Larry Beck at San Diego State University. And they uh, introduced me to a lot of writers like uh, Bill McKibben or um, Edward Abbey and really environmentalists, but people who love nature. And the it, professor, Dan Dustin, had hiked the John Muir Trail solo in this one story that he assigned to read. It was like an essay called uh, The World According to Gorp. And he um, he's the one who inspired me. I thought, you know what? I'm in school now. I'm uh, you know I have summers off. You know I'm working, but that's an adventure I can do. So um, the John Muir Trail and the High Sierra is right in my backyard, Southern California, and so I started asking around, um, just you know doing my research to write to hike this trail, and a friend of a friend uh, was actually an old retired ranger, just, or just about to retire ranger who was in charge of all the backcountry rangers on the John Muir trail. And he told me when I asked him about, you know, what I should do, any sort of hints for the trail, he said, well, I'll tell you what, when you walk through McClure Meadow this summer, when you're going to, I was going to do it, he said, you have to meet Randy Morganson. And he said, if you can take a walk with Randy Morganson, it would be like walking with John Muir himself. He grew up in the Sierra he knows the mountains better than anybody. And so, uh, long story short, he wasn't at his ranger station as I walked through that section of the John Muir Trail. And I just walked on. Well, the following year later, uh, that ranger who I spoke with, the retired ranger who was kind of the supervisor to all the backcountry rangers, told me, hey, did you ever meet with Randy Morganson? And I said, no, he wasn't at his station when I went through. And he said, well, he's missing now. Um, he went on patrol. And there's a huge search and rescue operation going um, right now, trying to find out what happened to him. And, and this was a guy who was famous for finding people who were missing in the woods. And here, all of a sudden, he was the one that went missing himself. And I thought immediately, boom, that's a story. Well, that was how I came to it. And it really became just an amazing story of this gentleman who had a lot of, he, he was a flawed character. And he had some marital problems. Uh, and he uh, had an affair, and he took with him into the backcountry that season uh, divorce papers. And he said that those were the most, the heaviest item in his pack, which was kind of you know metaphorical and, and powerful. And um, that became a seven-year project for me as I followed along. I actually searched for Randy's, Randy, either his body or some people thought he might have just left the mountains to start a life somewhere else. And ultimately. Um, the mystery was solved. I won't give it away here, but it really became a story where I was able to piece together a person's biography combined with this uh, massive search and rescue SAR operation uh, searching for him in the in these very rugged mountains. And it was just a beautiful um, coming together of, of an exciting search and rescue operation and a fascinating biography. And it really just, uh, and, and, and in a mountain range that I loved, and I learned one thing with this uh, story that the setting can be a main character in a book. And uh, that really became a, a, a reason why I, I, I spent 50 days in the high country. I would read his journals and try and find the spots where he wrote certain excerpts and he was very descriptive. So for me, it was a great excuse to get into the mountains and spend time out in the high Sierra. Uh, but at the same time, I'm piecing together this life. So it was kind of like a detective 
detective work, um, as well as, uh, again, my opportunity to live life along the way. You know, here I am writing a story, but experiencing so many great things and great places and great people at the same time and solving a mystery or attempting to solve a mystery at the same time. Right. That's a wonderful place to start your your writing career, essentially writing a book about that story. And guys, again, you need to go check that out. We'll have the links in the show notes to all these books, but we're going to be moving on to the next book now. So another book that you wrote, which was released in 2011, I believe, is The Only Thing Worth Dying For. And so this was a story that you wrote about an 11-man team of Green Berets. And these were one of, if not the the first team on the ground in Afghanistan to start the war on terror after 9-11. And more on that here in a second. But you learned about the story of this 11-man Green Berets team because you were embedded with Army Rangers previous to this. So what's kind of the story behind that? Because you were embedded with the Army Rangers before most journalists were. Is that correct? Yeah, I believe it was 1999, and um, uh, my girlfriend at the time, wife now, uh, wrote, she was an editor at Outside Magazine, uh, as, uh, an assistant editor, and she was doing a story about uh, the military's like clothing and outerwear and backpacks and how at that time they were still using, I mean, some of the stuff, the rucksacks and whatnot, were like Korean War era gear. And be her being in the outside industry, outdoor industry, um, and all the new technical fabrics and things like that, she did a story basically saying then and now, why is our military still using this archaic equipment? And during that course of that research that she was doing, um, there was a, a public affairs officer with the Army that said, you know, we're considering letting um, a journalist tag along with one of our army ranger uh, units or platoons in a training mission, like a mock war, do you think outside would be interested in it? And she said, well, I'd love to introduce you to my boyfriend. He, that's exactly what he's been wanting to do. Um, and uh, to kind of uh, highlight the military and, and bring some visibility to what they do, you know, fighting for our freedoms and also just, uh, just the amazing, athletes for lack of a better word and warriors that they are so that's how it came together again just a random thing and i jumped on it and they allowed me as when i was told i was the first journalist that they'd ever allowed to actually try and keep pace with these guys in what ended up being a mock war on the oregon coast in a rainforest and i gotta tell you kyle i mean it kicked my ass i was by the end of this you know 36 hours of no sleep trudging through this rainforest sometimes it felt like you were in vietnam i mean up to my waist in water and then continuing onward i was basically pissing pissing blood by the end of that 36 hours Uh, my kidneys weren't used to their gear they gave me um they gave me uh uh, night vision goggles that i'd never worn before and then it started raining so i was basically just in a in a vacuum at one point it was pretty funny uh, they would have actual firefights. You know, they had an enemy that was, you know, watching for them, hunting for them, and there was an ambush. And I had been following a gentleman in front of me, another like a radio operator, and somehow I got past him. And this uh, firefight started, and I hit the deck, went straight down, and there was a sergeant that looked over at me and said, who the hell are you? Open it. Where's your weapon? And I was like, I'm the journalist. The journalist? He said, where the <laughs> hell are you? And I, he, he, I said, well, I'm, I'm following um, Aaron's, I think was his name. He said, I'm following Aaron's. He said, Aaron's? 
He said, you're at the point, son. He said, Aaron's is like 40 yards behind us. And so I had crept up, not even knowing, following the wrong person. And was in the middle of this firefight where they had like the Sims rounds and, you know, static going off and tracers going. And I was on the ground and it was a pretty funny moment, but it was kind of a little introduction of the chaos that can happen. And these weren't real bullets. Yeah. And I mean, just even be in a situation like that is pretty incredible, just even as a journalist, because you're you're trying to think about how you're going to write all these things. You're trying to think about how this is going to end up in a story. And then you have to try to think, am I going to survive this? Like, I can't be the guy that quits whenever I just basically begged for this opportunity. So that's awesome yeah. that being in, embedded with that group kind of led to some other opportunities. And one of the opportunities was to get some you know, pretty behind the scenes access to the incredible people that are the subject matter of the only thing worth dying for. Uh, but the book really is a story of how an incredible group of men essentially went behind enemy lines blind with almost no support and even less direction at the time, but they were given a seemingly impossible mission. And that was to create a tribal revolt that would force the Taliban to surrender almost immediately. I mean, no big deal. Like, that's what you guys are going to go behind enemy, enemy lines and try to, like, pull off. No, Like, yeah, let's just go ahead and move with that idea. Could you just even, I know this is going to be hard. Could you just give us a Cliff Notes version of the story of this group of Green Berets? And again, guys, you're going to have to go get the book to get all the details. But just give us a primer as to kind of what we would see with this book. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, the, you know, the Special Forces were uh, tasked with this mission to be the first, you know, boots on the ground in Afghanistan after 9-11 as, as the response to either find Osama bin Laden and kill him and also to uh, get the Taliban out of, out of power in Afghanistan. And we had no battle plan for that. And one thing that the Special Forces, a lot of people have this misnomer of Special Forces are all the Special Forces, like the Rangers, the SEALs. The, these are considered Special Operations. Operations, forces. of course, right. Right. And the Special Forces in particular are Army and they are the Green Berets. And they work with the indigenous people uh, within a country oftentimes starting a uh, guerrilla war. And that was what these guys were tasked with. While a lot of the uh, original special forces that went in, they went into the North and teamed up with the Northern Alliance, which were battle-hardened warriors in their own right, you know, working under uh, warlords and whatnot against the Taliban. Well, this team in particular, OGA 574, that I um, uh, was really honored and humbled to be able to tell the story of, they were they were teamed up with an unknown statesman in the South. And the South was where the Taliban stronghold was. This was the Pashtun tribal belt, which was the dominant tribal unit in Afghanistan. And their mission was, hey, you're going to go right into the thick of it. You're going to go into the Pashtun tribal belt, which is dominated by the Taliban. And we want you to foment a rebellion among these uh, tribal groups. And they ended up teaming up with a little-known statesman named Hamid Karzai who ended up being the individual who became, as you know, the first democratically elected president. He was an interim leader. And by talking to these guys and literally reading like their, their logbooks, their notes from after this mission, uh, this entire team was inserted into southern Afghanistan. And within just a f uh, couple weeks, uh, Hamid Karzai rose up from virtual obscurity to become the interim leader of a nation. And every member of this 11 man, it was a one, one team, normally they're 12 members. 
This was a little bit uh, low strength. It was 11. This 11-man team, every single person on this team was either wounded or killed. And I'm like, wow, that is a story. And at the end of the day, um, they're, they're, they were faced with a moment where uh, the locals realized that the Americans were on the ground and they thought that they could rise up. And uh, the Taliban sent a retribution force to a village. And this team was faced with this moment. We're either going to bug out, we're going to get out of here, or we're going to face this massive force of Taliban that are coming to literally destroy a town, you know, put down this, re- uh, this uprising. And that's really the, the kind of the gist of the beginning of the, of the story and the little known story where some people don't understand where Karzai got his first credibility. Um, in Afghanistan that led to him being that first leader. You hear all these things about him being corrupt and his brother being corrupt. You'll find some pretty interesting stuff by speaking to the people who worked with him firsthand and um, and also just the crazy battles that took place afterwards. But it really did change the course of the war. And even today, it was the most significant mission geopolitically in the entire war. And um, yeah, I got to meet all the guys. I got to interview Hamid Karzai face-to-face. Um, I was between Sarah Palin and Condoleezza Rice when I interviewed him. <laughs> it was just a, right. quite a quite a wild ride, I have to say. And the mission is uh, just unbelievable when you see what these guys did. And the special forces, what they're famous for is uh, they're the guys who can go in and when everything goes to hell, they can wing it. And that's what they do best. They um, they can go down and when, when the first bullets are fired and the mission goes south, they are able to take with what they have and do the best they can with it. And um, that's what these guys did. It really is a wonderful story. And guys, there's so much detail in the story. And especially if you follow the war on terror, which most of my listeners, some of them even participated, but most of you have, have at least followed it. It's incredible to hear about what such a small group of men were able to do and the impact that it had and the ripple effect that it had thereafter. So that is basically the story of the only thing worth dying for. Now I want to move on to your latest book, and it was a book called Legend. And so I just want to read the, the short description here of the book. It's the story of the U.S. Army's 240th Assault Helicopter Company and a Green Beret Staff Sergeant's heroic mission to rescue a Special Forces team trapped behind enemy lines during the Vietnam War. So this is the story about Special Forces Staff Sergeant Roy Benavidez. He was eventually a Medal of Honor recipient. And again, I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot as hard as it's going to be. Can you give our listeners basically a primer on how Staff Sergeant Benavidez ended up earning the Medal of Honor uh, during his time in the Vietnam War, but also a little bit as to the maybe circuitous process that he went through to even be given that honor to begin with? Yeah, so... um... We'll, we're going to jump to Fearless eventually here, and that's that was the next book. And I know you're we're going to do that at the end. But after I wrote Fearless, which was an unbelievable story of just unbelievable personal, you know, courage and fortitude and and redemption, really, I thought, how am I ever going to top this story? How could I find somebody that tops what he did? And uh, as I started searching, um, I was tipped off actually by my literary agent's mom, who was a, I had no idea. She read my book. She loved Fearless. She said, this guy, Roy Benavides, um, should be Eric's next book. And I looked into it and I found out about this guy who, uh, via just, uh, YouTube videos and articles that had, uh, stepped on a landmine on his first tour in Vietnam and was told he'd never walk again. He was paralyzed uh, from the waist down. Um, he actually had been in a coma for a, a couple of weeks, I believe. Didn't know who he was at first. 
and he was told he'd never walk again. And he said he overcame that and he did. He walked out of the hospital. And then what did he do? He decided that he wanted to try and become a green beret himself. And that was at the time the most difficult, you know, uh, military school or, or, um, soldier to, to qualify for in, in the world. And this is a guy who couldn't even walk, you know, several months earlier. So if you fast forward from that, he made it through all this very, very difficult qualification process. Um, and this is a kid, by the way, who came up from uh, his his parents died when he both of his parents died when he was very young. He was adopted by an uncle. He was a sharecropper. He, you know, part of the year school year, he was picking cotton in Texas. Um, he grew up in a time time when he was uh, Mexican and um, Indian and and as he will tell you, very much American. But he grew up in a time when Mexicans and uh, blacks were not allowed in uh, movie theaters and and he would be relegated to sitting in the balcony and he couldn't even eat in the restaurant where he washed dishes things like that so he he overcame this racism at that time during that period and um joined the military and that's that's ultimately you know if you look at it god <clears throat> that's worthy of, a, of, of an award in itself what he overcame in life and he was always such a amazing uh, an inspiring soul where he would say, you know, it's not the color of your skin. You know, we're American. Um, we're, red, you know, the color that we're only concerned about is red, white, and blue. And so he ended up making it back. And just within a couple weeks of going back to Vietnam for his second tour of duty, uh, he was heard about this um, on a radio that there was a, a group of his unit were surrounded and they were basically about to be overrun. And they were, uh, helicopters limped back to this base near the Cambodian border. He found out that they, this mission was actually going on in Cambodia, which was, you know, we weren't even supposed to be there. Uh, the enemy wasn't supposed to be there. It was a secret war that was going on. And he volunteered to fly in and try and help this team that was being decimated. I mean, they were using the bodies of their teammates as cover while they were trying to get uh, um extracted from this small clearing in the Cambodian jungle. And so he jumped on board and when they flew in, they couldn't get him close and it was too hot. The helicopter was taking way too much fire from the ground. Uh, this team had accidentally, obviously been inserted into an area that was like an enemy base. You know, there's so many tunnels and things you couldn't tell from the air where, you know, enemy bases were. So they were basically surrounded, um, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of enemies surrounding this, uh, group of uh, 12, again, indigenous plus American special forces, and half of them were dead. And he volunteered to jump in. And when they couldn't fly him and get him close enough, he told the pilot, he said, just get me as close as you can. I'll get to them. So they, they landed, or they didn't land, they hovered about 15 feet off the deck, about 70 yards from this team. He jumped without even a weapon, just a medical bag, and ran through enemy fire 70 yards where he then uh, bolstered a, a defense for this team that was basically ready to be overrun. And um, through the course of it all, just he was wounded more than 30 times. A second helicopter crashed, and he then took those um, individuals, the crew that survived that, plus the men on the ground, um, organized them into another defense. Hand-to-hand um, -hand combat at one point, his own intestines were spilling out. I mean, the guy was superhuman, and he kept 
going. And um, at the end of it, they thought he was dead. He crawled on board. Finally, he got these guys out. He was credited with saving uh, eight individuals that day. And then um, back home, they were not giving medals of honor to, to for missions that were going down in Cambodia because they did not want to risk to risk um, letting the public know that we were operating within the border of you know neutral Cambodia, and so right. it became a battle, a 13-year battle, uh, for him to ultimately uh, get the the medal of honor, and he was awarded it by Ronald Reagan in the uh, at the Pentagon in the garden in the center, um, and. One of the things that Reagan said, which really encapsulates the whole thing, he said, if this story was a Hollywood script, you would not believe it. And that was really, again, an opportunity where I was able to tell that story. And, and one thing that he said in his own accounts of the stories he did, he said that the story of the helicopter company um, was never told. And you can't tell a story about Vietnam without including the helicopter and the men and um, you know, women who supported these uh, these units. And so, for my opportunity, I was able to tell the story from the perspective of the ground and the air on this uh, horrific day, uh, May second, nineteen sixty eight, which was the year I was born. That's an amazing story, and really, guys, the the detail you go into in terms of what he experienced while he was on the ground and everything thereafter really makes the story worth reading. And again, you're going to have to get the book for yourself to check that out. But now we're going to transition to Fearless, and we've talked about this. I told you offline. I've told everybody on this podcast again. It is my number one most favorite book of all time. Really, there is no close second either. Uh, it is included on the 100 books every modern Christian man should read list, uh, which is on our website. But I really love the subtitle of the book as well. So it's Fearless, The Undaunted Courage and Ultimate Sacrifice of Navy SEAL Team 6 Operator Adam Brown. And guys, if I'm not, if I'm obsessed with anything, I'm obsessed with these two concepts. One, being undaunted, and two, being resilient. Again, we are called Undaunted Life. That word, the word is literally in the subtitle of your book. And I don't think that there is a greater story of resilience that I know of other than the story of Adam Brown. So I want to read something from the end of the author's note in the book. It's this, quote, What you are about to read is the account of an American hero who bravely gave permission in his final written requests to share his journey from small-town America to the gutter, to jail, to Jesus, to war, to the top tier of the U.S. military, SEAL Team 6, unquote. And that really is the story of Adam Brown. And, and there's no spoiler alert here. I think everybody knows this by now, but Adam Brown did die on March 17th of 2010 while on mission in Afghanistan. And there's a lot of stuff that goes into the story of Adam Brown, and we'll, we'll get into some more here in a second. But just in general, how hard is it for you to piece together a biography about a person that lived such an amazing life, especially after they had already passed away? You know, you, you could never, as an author, writer, journalist, you could never tell a story like this without the support of the people who were closest to that individual. And in this case, it was Adam's family, his closest friends, and his SEAL brothers um, that had um, been both on the SEAL teams and in DevGrew, SEAL Team 6, um, who were at the end next to him, with him, carrying him um, after he was wounded mortally in the final mission of his life. So without that support, with if people aren't willing to share, you wouldn't have a story. Um, and that was really a brave thing for them to do. And at the end of the day, they did it because Adam said literally in his, in his final written request, if I'm killed, um, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, tell the story of who I was before I became a seal before he, um, uh, 
found faith in 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 jail uh, before he met his wife Kelly, who is the second hero in this book. Um, because uh, I mean, how many people have their own skeleton in their closet? How many of you listening right now have things that maybe you don't want your kids to know you did? <laughs> right? right? We all have right. them. Uh, and for him, uh, he had two kids who had no idea that he had been a drug addict. They had no idea that he'd been in jail. He had overcome all that and was a Navy SEAL at the top tier, SEAL Team 6. I mean, he had overcome other things we'll talk about later as well, physical, uh, mental. He always had this. He was addicted to crack cocaine, which few people overcome, even that, to live a life. And to do that and then still uh, get to the level that he was is amazing. Yet he, he could have uh, passed away and been buried a hero, and that would have been the end of it. But he went ahead and gave permission, in fact, encouraged them to hey, tell the story about when I was this, you know, dirtbag drug addict living in the gutter, you know, pissing himself in a crack house um, that I would that was me once upon a time. And you can climb out of that dark hole and you can overcome that. And that to me, you know, probably one of the bravest things he did was after he passed away, giving that permission because who wants, you know, who wants that to be told? Who, who wants that to be the legacy? And I think at the end of the day, uh, just by the, the feedback and the response to the book and his story, how many people he's inspired, I mean, that's the answer right there. He, he knew intuitively that his, uh, you know, the story, the darkness in his story uh, was, was really the important part about his story, because as his mom said, you know, hey, that's going to be really hard to tell some of these part stories, you know, you know, speaking ill of the dead, for example, telling these horrible things. But she said and she knew that you cannot show how far Adam had risen without showing how far he'd fallen, how dark and deep of a hole that he was in. So that to me is is really Adam's, uh, you know, the bravest thing he ever did, the most fearless thing was just allowing his story to be told. And I, just, I, I'm still floored that I was the one chosen to write this story. And um, really Adam's story is a gift. It was a gift to me. It was a gift to everybody who's, who's read it. And that's no, you know, that's not patting myself as a writer. It's, it's Adam's story. And what his life was is what really uh, is so powerful, his life. When I think they certainly chose right uh, in having you put all this together. And there are a lot of different stories that make up the life of Adam Brown, and you can only put so many in a book. But is there a story in particular from Adam's life? It doesn't necessarily have to be in the book, but is there just a story from his life that stands out in your mind, maybe a favorite story of his? God, there, there are so many, and that's what's so difficult as a writer when, you, you, when someone has so many um, defining moments in their life then you have to pick and choose because you don't want to do too many if you do too many they eventually it kind of uh it, it wears out it makes them all seem kind of flat uh one as a kid i think really stands out about his character and when he played football he was a little guy he was scrawny little as um his coach described him once he was all helmet he looked like a toothpick with a helmet right. on top and um so if you imagine that um Imagine he didn't grow much from like, you know, middle school up into high school. And when he was, I believe, a freshman um, on the high school football team, they would they would do 
uh, a, a alley drill or one of his one of his um, uh, coaches in um, Pop Warner, I think, called it Blood Alley. And basically what it was in Arkansas, and you can imagine this is this is the land of Friday Night Lights. This is, you know, football is everything. Adam's goal in life was to play for the Lake Hamilton Wolves on his high school football team. That was like his goal as a kid because his brother was a, a star football player. So he got to this point where he's one of the little guys. And the coaches at the end of practice would get the, you know, the freshmen, the JV, the varsity all gathered up together and they would do this blood alley to kind of like, you know, test the testosterone and just uh, pair people up. And um, most of the little guys would kind of be shrieking back into the back of the group like, please don't pick me, coach. Please don't pick me, coach. He was up front saying, pick me, coach, pick me, coach. And he kept doing this against like the biggest senior linemen linebackers, running backs, whoever, where they would basically get in a three-point stance, you know, paired off from each other. He'd blow the whistle, and they would buy and bowl each other in this alley. And um, he finally got called to do this, and the coaches were always kind of like, Adam Brown, he's crazy. You know, we our job isn't only to teach them football, but also to keep them safe. And finally, they let him do it. And he went head-to-head with a big old lineman, I believe it was, um, and uh, the guy just bowled him over. He jumped right back up, um, got in a three-point hand, said, let's do it again. Let's go again. Give me another chance. And he did it three times against this guy who just basically rolled him up. And then afterwards, he went over and thanked the guy, said, thanks for not going easy on me. Well, you know, 20 years later, 25 years later, when I, or 20 years later, when I interviewed him, um, his coach, he remembered that moment of this little kid, a uh, little freshman who was, you know, one of the smallest kids on the team who begged to go against the biggest guy, thanked the guy for not going hard on him. And he said that to this day, he said, you know, coaches, we try and find these moments where we can inspire and, uh, you know, get our team fired up. He said, at Adam Brown, during that couple minutes, uh, told us more and told that team more about character than any other practice in my entire life. And that really, I think, encapsulates who Adam Brown was and how he was able to overcome um, everything he did later in life, including no crack addiction. Um, I think something that's kind of interesting about the, the, the SEALs, especially the SEALs that uh, make it to that top tier to dev grew level, you know, people often say, what is the one, uh, what is the one factor um, that all these guys share. Um, is there anything that you found in your research that is something? And the one thing that I think is, has kind of made itself clear to me is that a lot of these guys are, were, they're children of adversity. I mean, they had something that they overcame at a young age and, um, that gave them that gumption to overcome and to make it through all the qualification processes that they have to do. You know, so many people fail, you know, buds, and have to um, ring the bell. And um, same thing with DevGrew. But Adam Brown, he did not know the meaning of the word quit. Um, he did not have a regulator. He did. He was all out 100, 100 miles per hour or he was going to go down. And that's in a sense what you need to do at that level. And um, his childhood really, really uh, encapsulated that for me as I told these stories. And that, that one in particular was the one story that made me realize this guy's special. Yeah, I would say that is certainly a great story. There is a story that most people will remember. It's about somebody pulling a shotgun on him and his friends and kind of how he responded to that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got to read the book. But probably the story for me in, in the most insane display of resilience 
was when Adam lost his eye in a training accident. So for just to get a little bit into that story, he went through green team qualifications uh, and which was the potential thing of joining the Navy Special Warfare Development Group. That's DevGru, as you just mentioned, aka SEAL Team 6. So it's likely the hardest screening green team is the hardest screening for the most elite military unit that we know of in the world. But before that, before going and trying to do something that that was that hard, he decided that the best way to get ready for green team qualification would be to go through perhaps the hardest sniper school in the entire world. And that was the Naval Special Warfare Sniper School. And, you know, that's a school that Adam had previously failed when he had both of his eyes working properly. And now he basically had one working properly. Um, this guy had to change his shooting stance. He had to learn to shoot left-handed. Uh, he had to learn to shoot with his non-dominant eye. And for, for guys that are shooters, like you know how ridiculously hard doing any of those things are, especially at an elite level. But he did graduate from sniper school. And then he did go on to become a member of DevGuru and SEAL Team 6. And I was just absolutely blown away by that story. And from that story, from something just, just like that, that's kind of a all-encapsulating story of his resilience, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you're leaving a little bit of a of a uh, something for the readers to discover, but I'm just going to put it out there because it's amazing and it doesn't spoil anything. But he also lost, um, you know, his fingers on his right hand were crushed off in a um, before he qualified in a, a Humvee accident in in Afghanistan, and so he also had to teach himself to shoot offhanded with a pistol, and. In room clearing, I imagine, you know, this is like the sniper team scenario where they have to go into a room and charge and clear a room with enemy and or non-combatants and do it all in a split second. He basically taught his whole body to react left when his everything in his being from his entire life had been right. It was one guy um, described it to me as imagine a, a, a NFL quarterback being told two months before the Super Bowl that you're going to have to throw left now even though you're right-handed right. and then do it at the per at that level under duress and by the way instead of only having you know the defense coming after you and the linebackers um blitzing in he said let's let's throw grenades at you as well um and so that was kind of what he overcame and was still able to qualify at that level i mean his um one of the armorers who helped him to set his sights on his gun so it would work uh you know with that off-handed style shooting both as a sniper and um, with his his sidearm uh he after adam turned around and trained himself to do everything left-handed and did it at such a level that he could qualify and man keep keep in mind you know 70 percent of people fail that are using what you know god intended them to have whatever their dominant whatever was so of um he did this and i remember that that was another very uh very telling quote was from the armor that he he said he asked adam one day he said come on adam come clean you're a jedi right and Adam, just in his own, you know, um, hayseed, you know, Arkansas uh, drawl, said, nah, I just pray a lot. And that he was also so stinking humble about the whole thing. Yet um, that was Adam, you know. Yeah, I just pray a lot. That was his response to the fact that he just did something no one on the planet had ever done before. And that was qualify um, using, you know, everything backwards in his life and still doing it at that split second speed and um, target acquisition and, and accuracy required to make that, you know, amazing uh, team. 
Right. And and by that point of the book, you're not surprised at all that Adam had done that. It's still impressive. It still boggles the mind, but you're not surprised considering everything else he had overcome. Um, but I was getting ready for this podcast yesterday, Eric, and I I didn't want to do this, but then I did at the same time. I wasn't sure how I was going to kind of go through this section, but it is absolutely gut-wrenching and brutal how you detail when Adam Brown's wife, Kelly, learned about Adam being killed. And so I was going to actually read a section of that chapter, but I, I don't want to sit here and cry like a punk on my own show because even just reviewing it, I wasn't even in the narrative last night because it's been a year or two since I've read the book. I wasn't even in the narrative, but just reading over the notes that I'd made the last time I, I read it, I was I was getting upset and I was getting teary-eyed because it's like, it's so impactful. And again, you you make us feel like we're in the room whenever the people you know, ring the doorbell. And you know, it's bad when you get a ring at, ring at the door and not a phone call. Um, what was it like for you as an author learning about how the whole process of how Kelly was notified went down? Because I, I don't know if you talked to Kelly directly or kind of how you got those details, but what was that like for you? Yeah, you kind of nailed it. I mean, gut-wrenching is Definitely accurate. I um, I did speak to everybody that's quoted in the book. I interviewed personally, uh, recorded um, interviews. So everything in all of my books, I'll just go backwards a little bit. There is nothing that I um, that I sensationalize or dramatize or fill in. You know, some some writers will do that, and I always try and say, you know, it's better to have a hole in your story than to fill it with bullshit. And in yep. my mind, everything in there is an absolute direct quote from either an eyewitness or a statement that was written at the time or a report. And um, yeah, I talked to um, I talked to the entire family about that. I talked to the people who um, had to notify Adam, his best friends. One of his best friends was there on hand as well. Um, and I think, you know, uh, some some friends of mine say that, you know, how do you do that? And I feel like it's it's in a way it's a calling because I'm I'm keeping their story his story alive and you know there's so much love for Adam um, from Kelly and the whole Brown family Larry Brown uh, Janice uh, Sean Manda uh, they are such inspirations because even having gone through this horrible loss they have just um, kept their eye on the ball and uh, used it as a way to use his legacy to help other people really. And that is what I just kept my eye on the ball when that was all going on. I mean, I writing this book, I cried multiple times. One time my, my wife brought dinner in to me in my office and she opened the door and I was sitting there sobbing over one part. And I mean, and she, and you can get an idea because her response was, she looked at me, she set the food down on my desk and said, again, <laughs> I mean, that, is what, that, that was how it was, um, to tell this, uh, you know, to recount it and uh, to answer your question, how do I do it? I just listen. I let them go and let them talk and, um, stay true to what they say. And certain things are just obvious when you hear it in a quote, you know, you know, that that's got to go in the book. And, um, it was, you know, there's, uh, there's moments in the book that will, you know, the strongest, most stoic, um, you know, stone faced, um, people I know have written me and said, like, I finished the book on an airplane and I am so pissed off. I had to, I was sitting there sobbing like a baby. I had to excuse myself and go to the bathroom to straighten myself up because it is. And that's, that's how it was when I was, when I was telling the story. And, and as you know, and it's, I won't even go there in this, but some people within the story are, um, don't, 
don't survive the war. And these are people I got, you know, close with in telling Adam's story. And it's, um, it's what they do. Uh, and they, the warriors, you know, it's, it, that is at the end of the day, that is their, their they don't want it, but it, it is something they understand as a possibility. Um, it is a, um, an honorable warrior's death. And as one guy, uh, Heath Robinson said, you know, there are people who die well, and there are others who kind of wish they could probably, if they had another chance, have a, a redo. And, um, you know, in, in this case, uh, Adam, Adam died well. He, he, uh, at the, the very beginning of the book, the first sentence I wrote when I sat down to write this book was when Adam Brown woke up on March 17th, 2010, he didn't know he would die that night in the Hindu Kush mountains of Afghanistan, but he was ready. And, um, that and, and I'm quoting that just from memory. Uh, that was the first thing I wrote down. And when I started writing this story and it stayed, it remained the opening line of the book through the entire writing and editing process. And uh, at the end of the day, it, it, it really tells so much because whether it's spiritually, whether it's um, it just has a father as a as a, um, a warrior, he he was ready. Um, to give his life for his teammates and for his country. And in doing so, he was giving, he was doing it knowing that he was providing safety and freedom to his family at home. And um, he just, he, he marched to a different drummer. He, he walked the walk. Um, he didn't talk the talk. He was an example. And I think that's why so many people love him as, as a man, as a warrior, as a Christian, um, and as a, um, an example, really. Right. And I, I think that was evidenced by a lot of the speeches that were given at his funeral. And specifically, one of his seal brothers, John Foss, said this, and you record this in the book, quote, And to Adam's brothers in arms, today we mourn the passing of our brother, and we celebrate his life and the example he set for us. Tomorrow, we avenge him. Today, we honor the passing of Adam's unconquerable soul into the eternal glory of Christ Jesus and into the halls of Valhalla. Tomorrow, we dispatch the souls of Adam's enemies to the hell that surely awaits them. Tomorrow, we bring that hell to their doorstep. Long live the brotherhood. Um, and I remember reading that for the first time and just getting chills because in that- I have chills you, right now. Yeah, I mean, in sure. that, you you get this intensity uh, about the, the retribution and the payback that these men want to get. But in addition to that, you get a deep sense of how these men felt about Adam Brown. Can you describe, you've mentioned it a little bit, but can you give us a little bit more detail as to how Adam's fellow SEALs and fellow warriors thought of him? Oh, wow. He, uh, they, a lot of them didn't know. His, they, they, they thought highly of him just for what he overcame as a SEAL, meaning this, you know, losing his, his eye, losing his fingers. They had, a lot of them had no idea that he had battled, you know, crack addiction and drug addiction and had waivers given to even make the um, the team. So if you uh, imagine uh, not even knowing that, they only knew maybe half of what he was up against in to his achievements, and they still loved him for that. Um, he was a guy who uh, was always the first one to volunteer to go into a dangerous situation, but he was also the first one after a raid to try and calm down like the local, like pulling out a light stick or a candy bar to give to a young Afghan after they'd raided their home where they were going after a suicide bombing 
group or something like that. He had this ability to um, flip the switch and go from warrior to a kind-hearted soul um, like that, you know. And I think that they really did see that. I mean, one, there was one particular mission that comes to mind as we bring this up. And one of his buddies, uh, they had gone after a suicide bombing ring. And they knew this for a fact that it was imminent because all these men were shaved. They'd shaved their bodies. And apparently that is what they would do before they are going to strap the bombs on and go and become martyrs, you know, um, sacrifice, you know, suicide uh, bomb into wherever it was they were going to do it. And uh, they had killed like there was like seven of these guys lined up in the dirt, and it ended up it was Easter morning, which is you know for um, for Adam with the resurrection was a was a very um, a poignant day, right? For um, for his sure. faith, and one of his buddies came over to Adam, and he was kind of slumping around, and and he said, "What's going on? You doing okay?" And he said, "Well, it's Easter." And then the guy told him, he said, "Adam, he said, dude." I don't understand how you can be religious and do what we do. And um, Adam, without a beat, said, you know what? He said, um, first of all, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. And second, I can't believe you can do what I do, we do and not be. And um, I think that those type of moments, um, you know, he's not being a Bible thumper. He's not being, uh, he's not, um, he's not, um, you know, condescending. He just um, kind of had this aura about him of just who he was and what he stood for, and that what he stood for was right. And I think that he gravit people gravitated to him for that. Well, and you've mentioned several times about his Christian faith, but I mean, it, the process of getting to Jesus was not a straight line one for him. He wasn't at church camp, and you know, the the person singing was really impressive, and they gave a great invitation. Like it wasn't that type of a story. Man, he he absolutely hit rock bottom. A lot of people say that, like, oh, man, I hit rock bottom. It's like, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Like, as you mentioned earlier, you weren't pissing on yourself in a crack house somewhere in rural Arkansas. No, you have not hit rock bottom. But how did the process of how Adam hitting rock bottom and then how he found Jesus affect you and your faith personally? Well, I mean, I, I'm still on my own private personal um, journey of faith myself. I mean, I, um, I had when I got this book uh, opportunity, I told Larry Brown, I said, hey, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I mean, I, I hadn't been to church or um, picked up a Bible in you know, 15 years except for funerals and weddings. And so I, I was honest with Larry and um, having a mom who passed away from cancer, I had a lot of my own doubts and my own cynicism about you know, what I considered religion. And so I, I wanted to become clean and be honest with him. And Larry Brown, Adam's dad, said, you know, I think that's great, Eric. He said, that's, it's better that you're not a Christian as you write this book because uh, it's not going to come across as propaganda. And I will say that, you know, learning about Adam and what he did and his version of faith and his own personal relationship um, and also his parents' journey as well, I, I felt you know, they made me question a lot of what I questioned um, religion and faith before this story. It opened it up to the possibilities. And I think that that's what's really pretty powerful about Adam, because as people that read this book that, you know, you, I talk about, you know, he talks about his um, his, his testimony and and um, his, you know, there's some of his favorite Bible verses and there's things that, that are that are scattered throughout. I didn't want to pound it into the reader, but 
it would be unfair and untrue to not include it because it was so important in Adam's life. And so I walk that line, I think, very carefully. And at the end of the day, I think it kind of represented who Adam was. He walked that line carefully as well, as an example. And um, I can I tell you, I mean, I can just say that I was such a cynic before, and it really did open my my uh, minds to, you know, the beauty and the power uh, that 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 faith does give people and um it, it it changed things for me as well i mean it just again it really opened up my eyes um to the positives versus what many things in my mind were very negative and i'm and my, i'm hopeful in the book that unfortunately some people see oh it's a christian publisher and they just won't read the book people that give it a chance who are not christians who are i've, I've had atheists and agnostics write me and just say, this is an amazing book. And I'm so glad that I overlooked the fact that it was published by a Christian publisher, because at the end of the day, it comes down to faith. And, um, and sometimes you need something bigger than yourself to get through things and then get through life. And Adam, I think, uh, tells that really loud and clear. Well, I would certainly agree with that, Eric. And in addition to that, you mentioned that you were a cynic. A lot of people think that in order to become a Christian, they need to go straight from being a cynic to being a Christian. And for some people, that is a straight line path. But for you, perhaps it might be a better way to describe that you've moved from being a cynic to a skeptic. And you can have a conversation with a skeptic because I'm skeptical about a lot of things within the church, within the Bible, but skepticism leads you to do research. It leads you to dig in. It leads you to have conversations. But a cynic is basically the person that's always just kind of like, nah, nah, this is stupid. This is dumb. That's a fairy tale. Like you can't have a conversation with that person. And so even just moving slightly from cynic to skeptic, it might seem like we're just splitting hairs at this point. But I think that that's an important distinction where it's it's interesting that the story of Adam Brown has moved you in that direction. Is, is that a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Well, um, the good thing about what we've done here today is we've, we've been able to cover all the books that you've written up to this point, and one of them in very, very good detail. So thanks as a fearless nerd that I am. Thanks for allowing us to go deep on that. But you do have a new project that you are in the process of working on. And I know you can't give us a ton of details, but the sense I get is that this is a very different project than the other books that you've put out before. So can you give us a little bit of detail as to kind of what you're working on? Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I like all of my stories to, um, they need to have a message. They need to have something that is inspiring in them. And um, in this case, I, I've gone away from the military and that type of service, or it's like Randy Morganson you know, served as a park ranger and kind of got back to my roots in, in the mountains. And, you know, there's a lot of mountains, mountaineers, legends in, in, in the world of skiing, snowboarding, climbing. And that's what I've delved back into a, a very inspiring story that takes me back to my mountain roots. And, um, it's been really, I feel almost like I was getting trained up to tell this story, uh, that, you know, was close, close to my heart. Um, and close to my, um, it was somebody I knew personally, basically, um, who, um, who was killed. And um, I'm finally going to tell the story of this individual um, because he was such a, uh, an inspiration um, to a, 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 the world of, of mountains and snowboarding and skiing and climbing and adventuring. And without giving too much, you know, it's, it's, it's for me, I feel like all this other, uh, these other stories and biographies with the military was kind of training 
you know, I've kind of gone full circle. I started my writing career writing about snowboarding and adventures and things like that. I, I went um, into the whole biography genre very deeply, and now I'm coming back and kind of combining both. And so it's, it's, it's an honor. It's, a, it's, it's more difficult to write, I have to say, because it, I, I am closer to it personally. But um, at the same time, it's also, um, it feels like I'm going home at the same time as well. So that's always special um, in, a, in a genre. Um, and I know it's being pretty cryptic, but it's a special book and hopefully we can talk about it when it comes out in maybe a year or so. Okay, very good. We will certainly look forward to that. And before we let you go, one thing that we like to do is at the end of our interviews, if we have time, we like to do a segment called, What Would You Say to Someone That Said? And so this is our lightning round where basically I'm going to say that beginning of the sentence and then I'm going to fill in the blank and you got 30 seconds maximum to answer each one of these questions. We just want the meat and potatoes answers to these topics, regardless of how much or how much you want to go on about it. So are you up for it? Oh boy. Yeah, I, I, I think so. Let's do it. I'm putting you on the spot. I'm not really giving you much of a choice about it, but you could hang up at any point. So it's not that big a deal, but it should, it should be all right. So we'll go ahead and get into the first one here. What would you say to someone that said the U S military lost the Vietnam war? I would say that there's still a whole lot of, of, of conjecture about that among those who were there and the people who they helped, you know, the, the media gives you a lot of, um, you know, uh, tragedy and uh, things like that. But there are still plenty who look at the Vietnam War no differently that, you know, stopping the tide of communism, no different than in World War II, we were um, stopping the tide of, of the Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan who were bent on world domination. So I think the, I think the jury is still out. And I say so, especially for those who served and all of them deserve to be welcomed home because they got a short, the short end of the stick as far as, as, far as uh, veterans who served our country. All right. Next lightning round question here. What would you say to someone that said, because of how the war on terror has progressed, it seems apparent that our military members died for nothing. Uh, for I d- d- completely denounce that uh, because, uh, first of all, go back to the beginning of the Afghan war when there were um, women being paraded out into soccer fields by the Taliban and being um, beheaded uh, for reasons as minor as maybe they went and flew a kite um, in their backyard in Afghanistan. Uh, now you go to Afghanistan and there is, uh, you know, there are women playing soccer. Um, I think that some of these things, you know, a lot of bad happened. Yes, they went after the war on terror, but there were byproducts that did help people. You can't help everybody. You know, being an international police force, you know, is impossible. But there is a lot of good. And uh, the American soldier like Adam Brown, um, male and female, I believe, has shed, um, you know, positivity um, at a personal level uh, to individuals around the world. And um, that is important. All right. Next one here. And guys, I feel the need after that last one. A lot of these statements I'm reading, these aren't things I necessarily agree with because I wouldn't agree with that statement either. But these are things that I've just heard people say. I've heard it in the ether. So just uh, keep that in mind as we go forward. But here's something that you did mention. So it's interesting that this is the next one I have for you. What would you say to someone that said the U.S. military should not try to be the world police? That it's a tough one because at the same time I've seen a lot of people who have lost loved ones and you know I've asked some of the people before who were um, friends or family and they say you know was this worth the life of so and so and they will say no it wasn't I'd rather have so and so 
uh, live with us right now. So I, it's a tough one. It's a, it's a case by case situation. I mean, there are times when there is such atrocities going on where, you know, I believe that we do need to step in as um, just as human beings. Um, but in other cases, uh, maybe they need to be encouraged to fight their own battles. So it's a tough one. I mean, I'm kind of, I'm fairly moderate in general, and I'm moderate on that one because um, I see the pros and cons of both, but there is a place for it. There is a time to shed blood and there is a time to walk away. And I think it has to be looked at very closely by people with, with compassion, but also um, strength of conviction. All right. Next lightning round question. What would you say to someone that said Eric Blim needs to write a fiction novel? <laughs> I would say um, Eric Blem himself says he needs to write a fiction novel at some point. Okay. That's just that's personal growth. Um, I will say, you know, the truth is stranger than fiction. I love nonfiction. Um, but as um, you know, everybody wants to, you know, do, you know, everyone wants to progress their own personal career and there is fiction in me. The thing is that I keep coming up with and are given um, stories that come to mind that I, I feel need to be told and it eats at me. Um, so at some point, hopefully I'll be at a point in my life where I can just pick and choose and not have to worry about um, earning a paycheck as well. But um, I'm not Stephen King or John Grisham yet. Maybe someday. All right. Next question here. What would you say to someone that said, I regret not serving in the military? Uh, well, uh, that, that, like myself, um, I look back and I feel like, yeah, that's something that I could have done, but, um, look what I have done personally. Um, I did find a way to serve my country by telling these stories, I believe, and telling them honestly and accurately without politics, um, involved, just telling the story as it occurred. And I think that, um, maybe not in the military, but I think that it's important that, um, you know, if you feel that way, uh, you can find a way to serve your country. Um, and um, it's it's not too late for that um, at a younger age. You know, it's not for everybody either. You know, everybody has their own personal strength and uh, you have to find that path. And um, I feel fortunate that I was able to do it. And, you know, I had that regret, but at the same time, uh, I was able to fill it with something that um, has um, given me purpose and um, fortunate for that. All right, just a few more left. What would you say to someone that said the military industrial complex is alive and well? Well, I'm not so much into the um, um, the industry side of things um, within, uh, uh, you know, if you're looking at it, um, you know, exactly as that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's really tough because, you know, you, you hear things when like, oh, do we spend, you know, millions of dollars on uh, one missile when, you know, kids maybe don't have something that we need in our country in school. Um, I feel like there is that that issue as well. Um, you know, there is not to get political, but we haven't started or been in any wars for the past four years. We'll see how the next four years go. But uh, we uh, we have kind of. Uh, tone back as far as that police force with active military troops and more smaller, you know, special operations troops. And I think that's a good thing as far as it being, is it, I think you said it, it is alive and well, I would say it is, but it's being refined um, and in a way minimized, but minimized doesn't necessarily mean less power. It just might mean less people. All right. Next one. What would you say to someone that said war should be illegal? 
God, I would love it if that was true, but unfortunately, it, to me, if you're being a realist, uh, there are bad people. There is evil. I've, you know, from the books I've written and the people who have been there firsthand, there is evil in the in this world, and in some cases, if that evil um, will not answer to anything else, what is the what is the choice? Do you let it go? I think people with a heart and with compassion, um, good-hearted people. Uh, we'll look at that and say, well, we can't let it go. And if there's another option, um, what do you do? It's it, it's a it's a tough one. I wish it was true. I wish that war wasn't necessary. Uh, but I think humanity is has proven historically that um, in some ways it's it's inevitable. Um, hopefully that will become less and less as we progress into the future. Uh, but it seems to me that it will still be a reality at, at, you know, just because of that evil in, um, in man and womankind. All right, Eric, last question of the day. What would you say to someone that said fearless is my favorite book ever? <laughs> I would say, uh, first of all, thank you, Adam Brown for being brave enough to have the story told and his family and friends for, um, uh, for allowing it to be told, um, it's, I can't say it's my favorite because all of my books are my favorite. I've come close to all of them, but every time I hear that, it puts a smile on my face and I share it with, uh, with the Brown family because it gives them solace that, you know, telling his story and doing it like they did, um, was the right, uh, the right response. Well, Eric, we really appreciate your time and for letting us go into all this detail, but that is all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? I will just say, geez, man, that lightning round. I, I hope I don't come off as an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always like to put people on their heels a little bit just for fun. It's fun for me. I don't care if it's fun for you or not, but I enjoyed it. Well, you know what? It makes you it makes you realize, honestly, um, you know, uh, politicians or whoever gets put on the spot by the media and they have to come up with a question, an answer, and then they're on the spot. That one thing that they say wrong might be the one that becomes every headline. Uh, it's it's tough. It gives you some respect and unhopefully understanding to those type of situations. Because when you go through it yourself, you're like, wow, I may not have really conveyed that exactly, but um, it's on tape now and it's forever. And so, you know, you got to live with it. So it's, it's, um, it's interesting. All right, Eric Blim. Thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Kyle, really appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for all your kind words and, and also just getting the stories out. And to all your listeners out there, those who serve, family members who serve, thank you for your service. And um, yeah, I think that uh, the topic of your of your podcast is an important one. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. All right, there you go, guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode, guys. I really, really enjoyed this interview with him because we were able to get into a lot of the subject matter on a lot of these books that I was just so excited to get into because when you can get into the mind of the author, you get a better idea as to why the story ended up in the way that it did, especially when you're dealing with real people. You know, he's not just like pulling these characters out of his butt and developing their backstory. He's trying to dedicate his entire artwork and his entire ability as a writer and as an artist to bringing out the truth of what these people were going through and what they experienced. And so I just thought that was absolutely fantastic. 
All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know, by now, Undaunted Life is here to help you cultivate manly resilience. And specifically, we do that by helping you with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So the resources I got for you today, I've got Eric Blim's website. So that's just ericblim.com. And then I've got an Amazon link to all of the books that we talked about in this podcast today. So you can go check all of those out for yourselves. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio and refer your friends to listen and share all of this on social media. Guys, if we deserve a five-star review anywhere you're listening to this, please leave us five stars and a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2021, so if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, at your team, whatever, hit me up. Email is info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. The website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the YouVersion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is our song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.